Don't start with me, Long don't. Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. Day Network will bring you there. So let's talk about it when life and on the air. This is Fran Lewis, and I am praying to God that this works. Please listen to me up there. Bill Marlin <laughs> is in here. And this is the third time. And this first two times, the sound didn't love me. And it better love me today, or I'm going to have a fit. Okay. Robin Lockwood is back, and her enemy, Maddie Kerrigan, is back. The novel resounds around two MMA fighters on opposite side at first. Explain why Robin and Mandy, their similarities and differences, and how come they both have a short fuse, which is beginning to tell me I have a short one, too. <laughs> well, uh, Betrayal is is my seventh Robin Lockwood book, and Actually, it's my 27th novel overall, which I find pretty bizarre because I I never thought I'd even write one novel, uh, Mm. let alone have 27 published. But uh, Robin uh, has been the star of uh, uh, my last seven books, um, and she's a really interesting character. Uh, Her background... sort of sets up the, the story and betrayal. Uh, she was raised in a small Midwestern town, and her uh, uh, father and her three brothers were all championship high school wrestlers. And so when she got to high school, she wanted to wrestle also. And uh, uh, when the uh, uh, parents of a lot of the boys on the team found out that a girl was going to wrestle, they went ballistic and went to the school board to try to get the school board to forbid Robin to to, uh, join the boys wrestling team Uh, and they succeeded Uh, the the school board said you can't wrestle well uh, Robin's family are all fighters and her uh, her dad hired a lawyer and they sued the school board and they won and that's when Robin decided that when she grew up she was going to be a lawyer uh, well, she got on the boys' wrestling team and actually does pretty well. By her senior year, she places third in the district championship, and it's the first time a girl has ever done something like that. But then she goes to a uh, uh, a college that has a Division One wrestling team, and she realizes there's no way that she could ever make that team. Everyone's, you know, a national title contender. So, uh, but she still likes combat sports, so she finds a local gym and uh, starts practicing mixed martial arts. Uh, When Betrayal opens, it's 10 years before the main action Mm. in the book, and uh, Robin's also a a brilliant student. She's a physics major, and uh, because of her academic record, uh, she's able to get into Yale Law School, but she's also ranked seventh nationally uh, in uh, mixed martial arts in the uh, UFC. So uh, she has a, a, a fight schedule on a card in Las Vegas on uh, pay-per-view television, and uh, that's how she pays her tuition to Yale Law School is with the money she's making in mixed martial arts fights. Well, right when the book starts, uh, again, like I said, it's 10 years before the main main action, uh, her manager comes to her and says that the, the top fight or one of the top fights on the fight card is between Mandy Kerrigan and another fighter. Uh, Mandy's ranked number two in the weight class, and the winner of this uh, fight between Mandy and this other uh, combatant is going to get a shot at the world title. Well, uh, 
the the person that Mandy's supposed to fight breaks her ankle, and they're looking for someone to fill in, and uh, so they don't have to cancel that fight. And since Robin is ranked nationally, they ask her if she'll step in. Her manager says, "Don't do it," because. Uh, he's very realistic about her chances, mm-hmm. and he says, "Look, you're good, but but Mandy's way out of your class." But Robin says, "You know, once I'm done with law school, I'm going to be a lawyer. I'm not going to fight anymore, and this is my only chance to maybe get a world title fight." So she takes the fight and gets clobbered and uh, uh, knocked out. She has short-term memory loss and. This uh, convinces her to end her fighting career right then and there. Now, ten years later, when the main, like I said, the main action in the book, Betrayal, begins, uh, Mandy Kerrigan's career is on the downside. And she did win a world title. She was the top dog for a while. But then injuries uh, uh, shortened her career. Uh, or as career as a world champion. Uh, and now uh, when the book starts, she's uh, on the downside of her career. She's the person who other up-and-coming fighters uh, fight so they can put on their resume that they beat a former world champ. So, mm-hmm. uh, But at this point in time, Robin is a uh, extremely successful lawyer, um, and the two of them meet when, when Mandy is arrested for a quadruple homicide. Yeah, well, she killed the Finch family, supposedly, and there's a whole bunch of them that she got involved with, and one specifically one, Ryan, for no reason. So why does someone like Mandy, Margaret Finch is no good, and Ryan is no good, and Annie's no good, and the the father is no good, and they're all no good. So why would she get involved with with drugs and stuff like that? And why would she get close to Ryan when she knows very well it could make her even worse than she was before? Well, this happens, unfortunately. uh, A lot of uh, athletes do extremely well, and then injuries and other aging affect their career. And uh, Mandy, the only thing she has going for her is fighting. She has no other skills. And uh, so she started taking uh, performance-enhancing drugs uh, to help her when she has these fights. And uh, the Finch family, <clears throat> Ryan is the is the 21-year-old son. Uh, they are all awful people. And the... the, the mm-hmm. uh, uh, just to go back a little bit, to give you a little bit of uh, background on the Finch family, uh, <clears throat> the 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 idea, the way I got the idea for the book, and mm-hmm. uh, ideas are that for me, writing is pretty easy. I have no problem writing. I can sit down and just do it. But getting an idea that's complicated enough to fill up a 400-page book is something that I find very difficult. Uh, fortunately, I only have to get one idea a year because I usually have one book <laughs> a year come out. And so uh, the way I got the idea for this book revolves around the Finch family. Um, usually in a murder mystery, there's one person murdered, and the detective or the lawyer or whoever is the main character has to figure out who done it. But I said, well, what if you had... <clears throat> an entire family murdered, and every single person in the family is an awful human being. Uh, so the gimmick in betrayal is that you not only have to figure out who done it, but who was the intended victim. And uh, mm. the Finches, just to introduce you to them, Margaret is the mother, and she is the lawyer for the Russian mob. And she's just you know, representing some of the worst criminals. Uh, Her husband, Nathan, is a brilliant chemist, but he just got fired from his job at a pharmaceutical company for embezzling money 
And the reason he embezzled the money was to pay off bookies. He's got a gambling habit, and these bookies are really vicious. Uh, mm. they, they'd have no problem killing you. Uh, in order to make the money to pay the bookies off, he's making designer drugs and uh, having his 21-year-old son sell the drugs. So the son is a drug dealer. And then Annie, uh, and I won't tell you what happens with her, but no, uh, she looks like initially like she's the the only decent person in the family, but it turns out that she has a very dark side to her. So each one of the Finches has uh, different people who are capable of murder and who would really like to kill them. So uh, you have to figure out, once you can figure out, and once Robin Lockwood can figure out who the intended victim was, then you can figure out who the killer is. But that's the the hard part. So getting back to Ryan's relationship to Mandy Kerrigan, um, Ryan sells Mandy uh, performance-enhancing drugs before her fight uh, in, in Portland. It turns out that she's uh, on a fight card in Portland, uh, and this is, again, like I said, on the downside of her career, and Robin goes to see the fight because uh, uh, Mandy's the person who ended her career and and, and made her realize that she would have a, a better future as a lawyer. So uh, when Mandy loses her fight, um, the worst thing possible happens. It turns out that the, she flunks a drug test, and Ryan is guaranteed that no one can trace these drugs. Uh, but the drug test turns up that performance-enhancing drugs are in her system, so she is in danger of being suspended, and uh, which means that she won't be able to earn a living. And on a, in addition, uh, her purse is going to be up, uh, held up, and that means she won't have any uh, the money that she's been counting on to live. So she has a real motive to. Uh, to kill Ryan and in fact beats him up um, at when she learns about the failed drug test. That is, that is horrible. But let's get to the good stuff, people, because I'm not going to tell you if I figured it out. Everybody knows I read too much <laughs> and figure out too much. I figure out too much sometimes and get in trouble. You can't, so for those you of can't you, tell who's done nope, it, though. <laughs> no, I wouldn't tell them, nope. But I will tell them this, that, you know, Robin had a point, and so did Mandy for wanting to fight. And when I was in high school, I was 5 feet tall, 200 pounds, because I'm 100 now. And I made the girls and guys basketball team. They actually wanted oh. me to play. Yeah, despite the fact that I'm little, I could do a three-pointer. And I don't know how I did it. But I'll tell you what, it was the most fun time I had ever. My mother didn't want me to play. I go, like, don't worry about it. I can handle this. So you'd be surprised. You know, little people can do an awful lot. Just what can I say? So let's get to the good part. The little bit of controversy here, because we have Tom McGee. The she gets arrested for murder, right? And they wanna, they wanna take, they wanna uh, kill her for Mandy. So we'd have Tom McGee and Robin, and they're gonna go up against each other, but they're dating. So how do you deal with that? Well, I, I, in some of the earlier uh, books, uh, Robin has a fiancé, and he dies. I know. And so she's really uh, grieving in a lot of the books uh, and has not – she's tried dating, and she hasn't been able to find anyone that mm. she wants to go out with more than once. Uh, and then uh, she has had a couple of – cases with with Tom who is a um, he's a, a district attorney and uh, they start they meet at a at a bar function and uh, he knows that she works out every day it's, it's sort of common knowledge that even though she's not a professional fighter anymore she still goes to the gym every morning um, mm-hmm. and works out so she's in great shape and he's a, a training for a marathon. He's a, he's very athletic too. And uh, so at this bar function, he asks Robin if she'd like to uh, run with him. And 
things develop where uh, a, a romance starts. But then uh, Mandy is arrested and charged with uh, uh, aggravated murder, four, four aggravated murder charges for killing the entire uh, Finch family. The police think that she's the murderer. And uh, this carries a possible death sentence. Uh, so Oregon has the death penalty, even though in reality right now there's sort of moratorium on it. But for, for the sake of my book, uh, they're still charging death penalty. And so she's uh, Mandy has been arrested, charged with death penalty, and and uh, has Robin has been appointed uh, to represent her. But then she finds out that Tom is going to be the lawyer on the other side. And um, I set that up because I thought it would be really uh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, this actually does happen in real life where uh, – husband and wife or two people who are uh, romantically involved uh, end up on, on both sides of a, uh, of a law case. And there, it's, you know, there's ethical moral problems involved. So uh, I thought it'd be fun for the reader to try to, to see how the, the, these two young lovers um, work out their romantic relationship while they're on either side of a of a very serious uh, murder case, you can't kill him off, though, because I cried <laughs> the first time. Oh, I was like, oh my God, how could you do this, poor Robin? And he was he was great. So I said, you can't kill him off, because otherwise they're going to be very unhappy people. That's just my point of view, people. Okay, now we've no, got I've had, the I've truth. Had, I've had a, I've had a couple of people. I've had a couple of uh, fans uh, write me in, uh, with the same same emotional reaction. Yeah. So uh, it's actually, you know, as a writer, you're always trying to evoke emotion. And yeah, when I you know. can do it, uh, it's great. <laughs> so I always feel good if I get some sort of a violent reaction from a reader about something that I did in the book. So that's, it's fun for me because it means it's, Whatever I did is really working. It is. It's very upsetting, though, people. My, you know, psychic <laughs> here. So you've got the other character that I read about, Amanda Jaffe. She's, you don't mess with her either. And we have Ken, the investigator. But you told me a long time ago that in order to run a death penalty case, you need a second person, right? A second person yeah. has to has to do this, right? So I got that. Not bad. So who is Ken? And what role does Amanda play? Basically, Robin takes the lead, but what does he do? And he's he's pretty good too, so far. So for the for anyone listening in who doesn't know about my background, um, uh, mm. before I became a writer, I, I was a criminal defense lawyer for 25 years. And uh, when I was in the seventh grade, as a result of reading too many Perry Mason novels. I decided that when I grew up, I wanted to be a, a not a lawyer, a criminal defense lawyer, and do murder cases. And that was really the only thing I ever I ever wanted to do. And for 25 years, uh, starting in uh, the 1970s, uh, I had a really exciting career as a criminal defense lawyer. I did 30 homicide cases, uh, including 12 death penalty cases. I got to argue mm-hmm. in the U.S. Supreme Court. And so uh, I, I, I did a lot of death cases. And the, the uh, a death penalty case is really different from um, any other case, even a, a regular murder case. Uh, murder mm-hmm. trial uh, is, runs pretty much exactly like a, uh, uh, any other shoplifting or whatever. You just, the, the charge is more serious, but the way the, the trial works is, is pretty similar. Uh, district attorney puts on evidence. Jury, uh, the defense can or may or may not put on evidence. And then the jury just makes a decision on whether or not uh, the person's guilty. If they find the person not guilty, the case is over. If they find them guilty, then uh, a judge makes a decision on what sentence to impose. Uh, in a death penalty case, it's, it's 
very, very different. Um, mm. the, uh, the jury that decides that the person is guilty uh, has to immediately have a second trial on uh, what sentence is going to be imposed. And uh, uh, this sentencing hearing has to happen immediately because uh, you don't want the jury sitting out for like a month. Like going back in a normal case, let's say you're you're found guilty on January 1st, uh, there's probably going to be a month to two months before the, you come back in and the judge decides your sentence. And during that time, the defense attorney will try to get evidence that would suggest you should have a weaker sentence. There's a probation officer who writes mm. a report for the judge. The district attorney will try to get people. So there's a big gap, but uh, there's probably only a one- or two-day gap in a death penalty case because you don't want the jurors influenced by reading the newspaper or having people talk to them about what they think the sentence should be. So you, you they come back immediately. Uh, Ken is the investigator that Robin has. And uh, he, he has a sort of interesting background, former CIA, um, police officer, etc. And when you're doing a death penalty case, you really have to, uh, the lawyer has to assume the worst. And you really prepare for the two different trials immediately. So you assume your client's going to be convicted, even though, even if you think you have a good chance of getting acquittal. And uh, uh, you then have investigators not only trying to figure out if there's a way to to show that your client's innocent, but also preparing uh, for the sentencing phase by humanizing witnesses like psychiatrists or people who know uh, the defendant from the time he was born. Uh, you you want to you have to humanize your client because once the client's found guilty, then all the juror knows is that this person committed a terrible act. He killed somebody. And so they have a very negative opinion. And uh, a lot of times the, the, the person has had a really horrible upbringing, the defendant. Mm. And so you want to explain to the jurors, yeah, he did something really awful, but here's, here's what his life was like. And you try to let the jury know that even though he's done something very bad, uh, he shouldn't be executed because there's, you know, his life, there's things that happened in his life that, that might have made the jurors become a terrible person, too, if they'd gone through mm-hmm. it. So your investigator is, uh, look, is absolutely essential. Another reason you have to have an investigator, and this is every case, uh, I sort of found this out when I was uh, a young lawyer, um, uh, much to my surprise. But uh, a lawyer cannot testify as a witness for his client. Mm-hmm. So uh, let's say uh, that you have a client who's charged with robbery, and you go to the victim without an investigator, just you're the lawyer, you just walk up and you, you talk to the victim and you say, what, what was the, uh, what, what did the uh, robber look like? And uh, your client is, is a six foot uh, Caucasian. And uh, the victim says, well, he was a five foot Chinese man. So you think, wow, I've got, I've got this, you know, sure winner. And then you get into court, and the witness gets on the stand. The DA says, what did the, what did the robber look like? And he points at your client, just like him, six-foot white man. Well, you're not allowed to get on the stand and testify that just a, two weeks ago, he said it was a five-foot-tall Chinese man. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, you need to have an investigator with you whenever you talk to a witness or even if you're not involved, you just have the investigator go out because the investigator could testify. 
So if you'd had an investigator with you, you would then put him on the stand uh, when it was the defense hearing and uh, say, you know, did you talk to the victim a week ago? Yes, I did. And how did he describe the, the person who robbed him? Well, he said he was a five-foot Chinese man. So uh, you can do that if an investigator's along or if, the, if someone other than the, the, the uh, lawyer does the interview. Um, so anyway, so, so Robin has to have an investigator, and uh, in this case, of course, it's Ken. Now, there's another rule in the death penalty case that uh, you can't just try it by yourself. Uh, mm. You have to have a second lawyer, and it, it's a it's an ethical uh, requirement because uh, the case, the death case, is so serious. You know, if you lose any other case, uh, it's an indeterminate. You know, it's a, a sentence, but it's not a, a sentence that can't be changed. Death penalty, you can't change it. If the guy gets executed and then new evidence pops up, you can't say, "Oops, sorry." So uh, the, the, in Oregon, the requirement is that you have to have a second lawyer, and that's really good because uh, obviously every lawyer is going to try to make the decision that he thinks is the best, but it's, it's really uh, important that you have someone who can say, you know, Phil, uh, you think this idea is pretty good, but I don't think it is, and here's why. Uh, so a sounding board, someone to bounce ideas off. You know, a- actually, uh, being a, a criminal defense lawyer um, it really helps when you're editing a book. Um, and, uh, you know, it's really just, you know, when you're doing a death penalty case, you have your second chair who can mm. tell you where you screwed up. And that's really the job of an editor when I send my manuscript into Keith Taylor in New York uh, at St. Martin's, thinking, wow, this is really terrific. <laughs> you need someone to say, well, Phil, I know you think it's terrific, but here's the problem, here's the problem, here's the problem. So uh, it's the same mindset, writing a novel and trying a murder case, uh, you need somebody to come in and show you where you screwed up. And in this case, uh, I bring back Amanda Jaffe. Now, I have had three series. Uh, one is with Dana Cutler. That was my Washington trilogy, Executive Privilege, uh, mm-hmm. Supreme Justice, and uh, Capital Murder. Uh, and that was – I have four books in that series. Uh, also, Slight Hand. Uh, but then I have five books in the Amanda and Frank Jaffe series. And uh, that was a really popular series that I did. And when I started doing the Robin Lockwood series, uh, I have these trials, a couple of death penalty cases in a few of the books. And, uh, of course, Robin needs a second chair. And I thought it'd be fun because Robert, uh, Amanda was a pretty popular character to bring her in as second chair. So in Betrayal, uh, Robin asked uh, Amanda if she would be second chair in Mandy's murder case. So what happens in a regular case? I'm not going to say what kind. Why don't all lawyers have an investigator to find out if the person that is doing the other side or the person that actually did something wrong to find out if they have any other cases against them. And I think that's something I'm not going to say why. It's been bothering me for a very long time. So I said, if this person has one case against them, how many more? Why wouldn't you investigate to find out so that you could win? And and they don't. Well, no, most, most attorneys have investigators uh, do mm. the, the the work for them. Like as I explained, if if yeah. you do it on your own, um, anything that you might find out. First of all, you know the there's so many parts to a, a criminal trial. Uh, one are, has to do with the facts. You know what mm. actually happened, and that's where you need an investigator to go out and talk to witnesses 
look at the scene. I have had a couple of murder cases that I won just by going to the scene of the crime. Uh, you know, judging distances, how far apart were certain things, where mm. were certain things located. And uh, uh, so you need an investigator to do things like that, to go out and talk to the people in the neighborhood, uh, people who witnessed the event. Uh, and that's, that's best left up to somebody with a background. Most of the, a lot of the investigators have a police background or some type of uh, uh, mm. uh, law, law enforcement background. Uh, but there's, the other parts are the, the legal stuff, the ev- rules of evidence and motions to suppress. And that's what you're trained to do in law school. And so it's a division of labor. So you sit down with your investigator and say, I'm, I'm going to work on a motion to suppress and on jury instructions and other stuff that I was trained for in law school. You go out and interview witnesses, take photographs of the accident scene, et cetera, mm. uh, stuff that you were trained to do as a police officer or uh, you know whatever your background is for your as an investigator, so uh, uh, it's, it's the, the only time that you wouldn't be able to do that is uh, if it's financial, because you have to hire an investigator. Now, if you're if you're a big firm, you, you probably have an in-house investigator. If you're not a big firm, if you're a sole practitioner, uh, then you're going to have to hire an investigator to work mm. on your case. And uh, sometimes it's not worth the outlay of money. For instance, uh, if, if someone, my, if a client comes in and says, I was just arrested for shoplifting, uh, mm. you know, uh, shoplifting some lipstick or you know, a magazine or something. Well, you know that if the person's convicted, uh, nothing's going to happen to them. And so the question is, you know, you're going to charge your client X amount of money to be the lawyer. Is it financially worthwhile to also ask them for the money that they need to hire an investigator? So mm. it's a monetary decision in a lot of cases. Like I said, big firms always have have an investigator or one or more if they're a really big firm working just in-house. But uh, if you're a sole practitioner, it's a financial decision. But in a death case, you absolutely have to have um, an investigator, and sometimes more than one. Okay, now, before I forget, on Monday, no, it was Tuesday, actually, December 5th, the author of Least We Forget, on the 7th, we're going to have a little fun, Elves for a Day, a children's book by Deb Hockenberry. Children hate to know how to help other people. On the 12th, the author of The Legacy. On the 14th, I'm going to brave this one. It's a panel, and it's going to be on ageism. The six questions that when people ask me, I want to hang up, and I won't answer them. Age <laughs> questions that are insult. Yeah, you have no idea. I got on the phone with someone this morning, and she asked me my date of birth, and I said, it's probably in the phone book, and I don't remember where I put it. And then she said, but you have to tell it to me. I said, you would think after coming to this person for 20 years, you could figure that out, and I refuse to tell it. It's annoying. And then they talk to you like you're 105, so forget that. On the the 18th, we have Michelle Cameron, and on the 20th, what better way to end December than with the greatest – horror writer in the world, Vincent Zandri and Moonlight Falcon. And his book I read in an hour, not even, and his character is outrageous. So that's what's coming, and we're starting in January with New York Times author Dick Belsky and Broadcast Blues. And this girl is booked until the end of February, so if you have anything out there, March is getting crowded too, believe it or not. And I felt I was so honored the other day. I don't know if you know who he he is. I didn't even know he knew who I who I am. He is the uh, federal. He is the chief federal uh, judge of the Trade Commission. The former chief federal judge of the Trade Commission, Stephen Granger, and he's coming on in January. And I go like, 
Oh, my God. I had no idea. So I'm getting very popular. <laughs> so, and then I told everybody that you were coming up. So now we've got the question of the day. Mandy has to be in jail, right, for a while? How does she she deal with that? Because she's not exactly the calmest person in the world. Well, two things happen. Uh, first of all, mm. being in jail, one of the problems is, uh, you know, especially if you're a yeah. If the word gets around that you're a professional fighter, somebody's mm. going to want to test you. And uh, she does quite well because she does get, she, you know, Robin asks her how she's doing in jail. And she says, you know, that this person did try to pick a fight with her, but she beat her up pretty badly. And that gave her a lot of credibility with the other prisoners. Good uh, for her. But... <laughs> but uh, what also happens, and I won't tell you what the background is because it would spoil yeah. some of the fun. But Robin, um, and one of the going back to when I was creating the character, uh, in about probably more than half of my books, they have very strong women characters, and uh, they frequently will get into dangerous situations. And in real life, if a man and a woman fight. Um, then the the man's probably going to win. Just he has bigger upper body strength, uh, probably has done some kind of combat sport at some point in his life, mm. like boxing, wrestling. So I was trying to figure out if, if Robin, how can I make it realistic if I had a character like mm. Robin who gets in a fight with a man? I said, mm. oh, I'll make him a professional fighter. So that's why I... I got her uh, to be a ranked MMA fighter so that if she does get into a fight with a male, which happens in a couple of the books, and she wins, uh, the reader's not going to say, oh, well, that's ridiculous. You know, this is, you know, silly. They'll say, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So something happens in the book. Uh, it's an action sequence uh, that where Robin does get into a fight, and it's, it's something that becomes publicized. Uh, and so, uh, so the fact that Mandy's got Robin as her lawyer gives her even more credibility in prison. Mm. Uh, Robin becomes sort of a celebrity, and that makes uh, Mandy a celebrity because Robin's her lawyer. So she actually is able to handle the jail fairly fairly well. Now, there's one character who I left out his name for a reason. Because otherwise, we'll figure out who the person was that whatever they did. So, how did you create the one moment that led Robin to realize, oh my God? And how does she get stressed out? Because this could really make her a nervous wreck just to deal with this. Well, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of a way. Answering your question without giving away, uh, you know, what the biggest thing in the mystery is. Uh, you don't want to tell anybody, yeah. Who done it? Uh, actually, I have a funny story about that. The, the, the uh, it, I've had two writing careers. In, in my 30s, um, I wrote, uh, two, I had two books published. Uh, Heartstone uh, was my first novel, that was published in 1978. And then 1981, my second novel, The Last Innocent Man, was published. Uh, and then I quit for 12 years because uh, the same year that I, I had the book published, I argued that the U.S. Supreme Court started, in between the two books, started getting hired to do big murder cases in the field, which is what I always wanted to do since I was a kid. Mm. But one incident that happened... <laughs> When I was, uh, uh, when my second book, The Last Since the Man, was published, I did a lot of TV, uh, television, uh, and uh, I was interviewed in Portland by someone who had never interviewed a fiction writer before. And uh, during the interview, he said, uh, you know, how come you made X the killer? And, of course, that's the worst possible thing that could happen to a mystery story writer 
is on yeah, they tell the television That's having the person, you know, having the interviewer give away who the killer is. So I gave some sort of a fumbling answer that I hope would be so confusing that, that no one would ever real, you know, would stop mm-hmm. thinking about that. And then after the, as soon as the cameras stopped, they took a break for a commercial. The guy came up to me and he apologized. He says, oh my God. He says, as soon as the words were out of my mouth, I realized what I'd done. He says, you're the first fiction writer that I've ever interviewed. And he was very apologetic. And I said, don't worry about it. And, and uh, the book sales are pretty good. So it obviously didn't hurt the, hurt the, uh, hurt the book sales at all. But uh, uh, so whenever I'm interviewed, I remember that situation. Uh, so getting back to your question, I'm trying to pick the so what I what I've done in a number of my books um, is when the the uh, the the hero or the heroine in this case Robin um, is in a situation where things are going really badly and, and mm. it looks like she's going to lose her case. Uh, some of the times, what I do is I have a I have them have a dream. And in the dream, things happen which don't seem to make any sense. But which, when when they when she wakes up, she says, "Oh my God, I didn't see this coming." And uh, so that's what I do in the book. She has a things are going really horribly in her trial with Mandy, and then uh, she she uh, is stressed out, has a really bad night sleeping. And then in her dreams, her brain sort of shuffles things around and, and, and gets her thinking about uh, something that happened that lets her figure out who the real killer is. So, uh, and I actually, it's really interesting. I get a lot of my ideas for books uh, when I'm sleeping. I, I don't know if, <laughs> if other authors that you have on your show have this happen, but um, it's not unusual at all for me to wake up when I'm working on a book and say, oh, I could do this, this, and this. Uh, or right before I go to bed, I'll be lying down trying to get to sleep, and then an idea will pop in. And then I jump up and I, I send myself an email uh, with the idea so that in the morning I don't forget about it. I wish I could do that. You see, but I have an advantage, people. Everybody I write about is dead. And they're either guilty, they're guilty, and they're telling their story, so it doesn't matter if there's a jury. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm very excited to say I just found out that I don't know if I'm going to write another one ever again, but this one's going to be called Mirror Image, and then this, that's part one, and then The Dead Returned, part two. Mirror Image means that you look at your face in the mirror, and what you see is a distorted face. If you don't undo what you've done to someone else, you're going to wind up that face in the mirror. And don't ask me how I thought of that. I don't know. But I thought it was different. And it's going to come out in January. And hopefully people will want to read it. There are eight stories. They're all different. And everybody's guilty. And they have to Ah. decide if they want to repent. Yeah, it's scary. And the second part is the part of my book that I wrote, Silent Voices, People whose voices were silenced and need to be heard. And two or five of them are true. So everybody's got to figure out which ones. Okay, now, the fun part. Here we go. My my paper's turned. What about, I know the ending, and I know the verdict, and I know what happened. So we're not going to tell anybody and go like, what? So what about um, Robin and Tom? Are they going to stay together? What's next for these two? Because you can't kill him off, not yet anyway. You can't, no, no, you can't have that. Well, I'm taking, I have to say, I'm going to take a break after Seven Robin Lockwood. Uh, oh, no, can't do that. Is, mm-hmm. I'm just taking a little break from the series. And uh, I've got a really mm-hmm. fun book that um, oh, good. is finished. It's my 28th. It's, it's uh, tentatively called An Insignificant Case. And nice. uh, it's with my uh, with with my editor in, in New York and I should be getting the edits back uh, sometime next month uh, 
but it, it was sort of inspired by a real case that I had um, when I was just starting out. It's been back in the 1970s. And uh, I was hired, uh, or I, I court appointed at that point. I had a really small mm. practice, so I tried to build it up. And I was court appointed to represent an artist who uh, had a dispute with a with a restaurant that bought one of his paintings. And mm. so he broke in to the restaurant and stole the painting back. And so I represented him. It was a little little nothing case. Uh, so in, in the book that uh, is being edited, and that it'll come out probably next November uh, 2024, uh, I have a, a lawyer who's not very successful, uh, Charlie Webb. I, I, I described, I said, if Charlie was a grade, he would be a C. Because he's not <laughs> awful, but he really doesn't do anything that well. And uh, his, his practice is just starting out. It's really not doing great. And uh, he is appointed by the court to represent this uh mathematical genius who has a, had a nervous breakdown and who believes that he is the reincarnation of a painter who uh, uh, was worked in the Renaissance with uh, Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo. And mm. so he's a little crazy. And uh, he goes around dressed almost like Jesus. He looks like he's big. He's like 6'4", but he wears this outfit that makes him look like Jesus Christ and he's got a beard and you know he's has long hair and uh, he is actually a very good artist and so he uh, he goes from restaurant to restaurant and, uh, to sell his paintings and they're good so they get bought but uh, he's nuts and if he doesn't like where the painting is, is uh, displayed he breaks in at night and liberates the painting, and of course he gets arrested. Uh, but he claims, you know, that it's his right to do this because they 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 didn't hang the painting where he wanted them to. Mm. So uh, the the incident, which appears initially to be a big nothing, he breaks into this Italian restaurant and and steals back a painting of Venice that he did. Uh, but he also takes something out of the safe. And uh, it's the it's a thumb drive that shows a has a snuff film on it, and mm. the the people at the the person that owns the restaurant and this movie producer whose whose picture has been nominated for an Oscar uh, are uh, convicted are uh, arrested for running a sex trafficking ring, and this. This snuff film plus the list of all the people who could be, you know, famous politicians, etc., uh, businessmen who are on this uh, identified as the clients. Uh, everyone's out trying to kill the to kill the uh, the clients so they can get this thumb drive back. So it's uh, it's sort of a fun. I had a lot of fun with the book because it starts out as an insignificant case, something looks like it's a big nothing and balloons into this, balloons into this big case. So I had a lot of fun writing it. Like I said, I got the idea from this, this uh, little case that I had years and years ago. That, 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 that's interesting. I know that my book, Sisters, Two Sisters from the Bronx, are based on stuff that happened when I was teaching and when I was with my sister. But to be able to come up with an idea in the middle of the night is amazing. I, you know, I, I think about. I think the hardest thing for me is when I have to figure out how to start a book review and make people want to read it, because my my reviews are different. And no, <laughs> I, I had the the beginning of it like you're the beginning of a chapter. Well, if the first three sentences don't grab me, then obviously the book didn't grab me either, which is amazing. And unfortunately, I have to say this, this is really upsetting. Um, Amazon, somebody hacked into my Amazon account, and I've been, I can't write any reviews. I have spoken to 25 people, and they don't seem to get it. 
I've never written anything derogatory. I've never written a bad review. But somebody, for some reason, wrote something, and now they're not letting me make a review. So I posted everywhere else. And I did speak oh, to mean- the people in charge, and I don't know how to fix I know what to do. So I, I, so you had someone write a review on Amazon claiming Somebody it was wrote you. something. Somebody changed one of my reviews or added something. And now when I huh. want to post a review, it says, we're very sorry, but there's been unusual activity on this account, but it's not my account. And I said to them, I called them. Like Talking to them is like talking to an arm with no, with no fingers. Seriously, I have no clue. <laughs> I mean, it's insulting, and I did send one this morning and then said, it would be nice if you could fix it, but you know what? It's your loss because when I write a review, your sales your sales double. So where can everybody get every one of your series? And this sounds like a new character, and I hope I get it before everybody else does. Yeah, like I said, I'm waiting to get beat up by my, by my editor. I, I actually encourage <laughs> my editors. I actually, I didn't, I, I, pardon me, I only had one writing course in my whole life, and I got a C-plus creative writing when I was in college, so I haven't taken any of the writing classes, so uh, I I always encourage my editors to beat me up, you know, I tell them, please don't tell me anything you like about the book, because if you like it, it's working. Tell me where I screwed up so that you know I can we can make the book better. So uh, I I am waiting to get the get that book uh, get the edits back because I'm really curious. I'm always curious to see what the editor uh, thinks about it. But uh, all of my books are like anywhere you can get books, you can get it. They're on you know Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You know you can get the e-books or you can buy the hardcovers or whatever. They're, they're audio. All, all the books are on audio and big print. And, you know, any any place uh, that you can uh, buy a book, you can get uh, Betrayal or any of the other books I've written. Well, all of them are fantastic. And um, I, 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 buy, I don't buy anything on Amazon. If people don't send me the book, I'm not going to read it. Not anymore. <laughs> what can I say? But for those of you that don't know, um, before I retired, and if my mother didn't have Alzheimer's, I'd probably still be there, I'm a reading and writing specialist, and I try to take reading and writing in college for my fourth master's, for real. So I got pretty good at it, and I tried. (laughs) And um, my students obviously are writing, which is fantastic. Some of them are authors, actually. And they're on Facebook, and they tell me that they, because of me, they can even learn. They even learn to read. But Phil, thank God the sound worked this time. And <laughs> if you ever have time to do a panel, let me know. And everybody, if you if you don't like those six questions that people ask you, starting with what's your date of birth, I forgot. You should listen on December 14th at 10 because you might get a little bit of an insight. Everybody, it's a beautiful day. Thank God, Phil, at work. This has been so much fun. Everybody have a great day, and bye. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.